Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that thinking differently and innovatively about solving big social issues is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. So we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with me, your host, Ginzi Khatebe. So we're a few weeks into the new year and it's apparent that even though a lot has changed, a lot has also stayed the same. Globally, we're still reeling from the social and economic impact of COVID-19. And for us in South Africa, we're in the thick of the second wave of the pandemic. Overall, society's morale has taken a serious knock due to the continued restrictions, risk and worry about the future. A recent article published in the Mail and Guardian notes how much has been said about the silver lining of COVID-19. That is, its comparatively low impact on children. The article then goes on to say that even though one third of South Africa's population is under the age of 18, only 7% of recorded cases of COVID-19 have manifested in children. This appears to be changing, however, as the new COVID-19 variant seems to affect young people more than the previous strain. However, less has been said about the silent toll the pandemic has taken on the youth. Children's lifestyles have been disrupted immensely. Not only have they been dealing with the rapid changes in learning methods and not being able to go to school and see their friends, but many children have also lost aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents and teachers due to COVID-19. Many hope that the new year will bring new energy to the education sector, but With the shadow of COVID-19 still hanging over the country and school opening dates now further postponed, there is much work that needs to be done to ensure that schools are able to hit the ground running and weather the 2021 storm well. So, all this begs the question, for the 2021 school year, what baggage are we taking with us? What's in the backpack for 2021? And is it perhaps a little too heavy to carry? Today, we're privileged to have Dr. Alistair Witten and Louise Albertain as our guests on the Just for a Change podcast. Alistair is the founding director of the Center for the Community School in the Faculty of Education at Nelson Mandela University. Alistair has been involved in the field of education for almost 30 years and has more than 20 years of experience as a teacher and principal in schools across Cape Town communities. Al held the position of Interim Director at the Principal Centre at Harvard University and is also a friend of the Bertha Centre as co-course convener on our leading Innovative Partnerships in Extended Education course. We're also joined by my colleague, Louise, who is the Senior Advisor to the UCT Graduate School of Business's Bertha Centre for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship on the Education Innovation Portfolio. Louise brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise to this conversation through her close to 15 years in the education sector, working with and in schools and social purpose organizations. She joined AL in piloting the executive education course for members of school communities seeking to lead partnerships well. AL and Louise, welcome to the Just for a Change podcast. We're going to jump straight into the questions for today. And I want to start right at the beginning for us at the Just for a Podcast team when we were thinking about what we're going to talk about for this episode and why this conversation is so important because there's so much current public debate around schools reopening, what models should the government be following? 
And really, there's a lot of emerging research that points an alarming picture of how COVID-19 at the various stages of lockdown has affected South Africans in 2020. Al and Louise, what are your overall thoughts and feelings about the past year that has just gone by? Great. Thanks, Kentia. I think alarming is is the right word. I think if I had to sum up my thoughts about 2020, it would be that it's been a perfect storm because I think each player within the education story is going through something very difficult at the same time. So you had parents suddenly needing to move to homeschooling. And as somebody recently said, homeschooling is a bit of a misnomer because that implies that it was an intentional choice. You were able to plan for it. This was actually something that was thrust upon parents with very little warning and very little equipping. So I think parents are grappling with that at the same time as learners having everything stripped away in the school day beyond the quite clinical academics. So you no longer had your informal conversations with your teachers, your peers, you no longer had extra murals, any of the annual events that mark the passing of time. And then at the same time, you had teachers who suddenly had to rapidly move online and had to contend with not just uncertainty, but I think sustained uncertainty, which I think has been particularly difficult. And Al, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it, it has indeed been very, very difficult. And I want to agree with with, with Louise on, on that. So what we've experienced, not only in the education system, but in society as a whole, has been what I would call disruptive change. Um, and by disruptive change, I mean change that's unexpected, that's been imposed often by uh, you know, something that's happening outside of the organization or, you know, outside of the individual. So it's imposed upon you and it forces you to actually change the way you do things. And this change has affected all of us. Of course, most importantly, we know in our schooling sector, our learners who really are the sense of, of, of the work that we do, um, have been affected the most. And, um, I am not sure whether we as a society have paid enough attention to the extent to which our learners have been affected by what's going on now. And I would say that, um, you know, the effects of this are going to be felt for many, many years to come, especially amongst our learners. And uh, we are going to, as not only the schooling system or schools or the government, but as a society, we are going to have to do something to restore um, our learners to their rightful places of learning, um, to you know, unlocking their full potential, to releasing their future dreams for them. And that's going to take time and it's going to take our collective efforts because the impact of what has happened um, by this pandemic um, is going to be with us for a very, very long time, especially on our learners. Oh, I want to latch on to what you were speaking about a little bit earlier around the disruptive change. And I want to almost align that to the conversation around leadership, specifically leadership during this period. What would you say are some of the ways that leaders could show up for their staff? How can principals best support teachers, even when it comes to issues like mental health? So here is what I said, uh, you know, a few days into the lockdown, a few weeks into the lockdown last year, I was um, on one of the platforms and I was talking to a group of uh, leaders at the provincial level. And I said to them, during times of crisis, people won't remember what we as leaders did. People will remember 
how we as leaders made them feel. And that's a really profound statement because this is exactly what our leaders have to realize, that in times of crisis, people look up to leaders almost intuitively to help them make sense of what's going on, to give them guidance and direction, and to provide some form of support to help them get through it. So the leadership role across all levels of, of society, you know, not only in education or in schools, is very, very important, especially during a time of crisis. And what we've done is we've kind of developed this principle um, or this concept of what we call holding, you know, holding, um, psychological holding. Um, it's been developed by psychologists called Petri Glieri. And what it means is that during times of crisis, what leaders do is they use the concept of institutional holding and interpersonal holding to help people get through it. So institutional holding, I'm not going to talk a lot about that because that's just about how you rearrange the work that has to continue, that has to carry on. The other aspect, which we call interpersonal holding, is where the leader steps in to create a space to engage with the team, to engage with the group, to tap into, you know, how they're feeling, what their concerns are, what their fears are, to allow them to express that, to give them a space to do that, to process that, and then to look at how the leader then can pull the team together, not only making sense of it, but in dealing with it from a psychosocial perspective. So this is really important. And we've asked leaders to set aside time and safe spaces to do that in the organizations, and in our cases, of course, in schools. So, for example, this can happen um, by just having regular rituals. Now, a ritual is not a religious practice only. A ritual is a practice that one participates in that has deep meaning, that gives one hope, that helps one to pause and reflect. That's a ritual. And in schools, we can have these rituals. So, for example, for five minutes or ten minutes, every day before teachers start their working classroom, just to check in with children. How are you doing? Right? Just give one word or write down or draw. You know, how are you feeling today? What has happened last night? How are things at home? Just giving learners a chance to check in around how they are feeling and what they are going through. The same thing happens at the level of the staff where the principal, for example, before the school starts the school day, could convene the teachers for 10 to 15 minutes to check in with them around how things are going. And that's the concept of holding that's very important. Al, I want to pick up on what you were talking about on the other side of it, around the leadership, because one of the things that we've seen during this pandemic is how a very top-down or bureaucratic position, which only looks at leaders responding, can actually prevent a lot of the innovation and some of the solutions from coming through. What does it look like from, I think, an educational perspective where we take a more collective leadership approach? What does that look like where we're not just looking to our leaders, where we're actually looking to the community, where we're looking to the broader, I suppose, perspective? What, what does that look like? So, you know, I've said that um, gone are the days of the all-knowing leader because our knowledge systems could not firstly get us out of it, couldn't provide an effective response to the pandemic. And even now, as we're trying to develop a vaccine, we don't know everything yet. The science around it is evolving. And this is a very important leadership lesson. So there are no, there's no such a thing as an all-knowing leader anymore. 
the single heroic leader. What we all need to realize as leaders, and that includes all of us, even in this conversation, what we all need to realize is that we don't know everything, that we are still in the process of knowing or learning. And when we're in that process, we then realize that we need to go to others for information that we may not have. And I've seen this as a trend, even working with some of the bureaucrats, the, the officials in the department, where they said that, you know, we, we have to talk to people we have never spoken to before. We're speaking to the health department officials in terms of how we deal with things at school. So it's become very important that as leaders, we realize that we don't have all the answers, that we cannot solve all the answers on our own, and that we need others to help us. And that is what I call distributive leadership. In other words, distributing leadership across, you know, broader group of people or collective leadership, as you say, Kenze. It is so important um, during this time. And I would say it is really going to be very important as we figure um, our way forward in terms of getting, getting the education system back on track. And I suppose talking about how do we figure a way forward, Louise, I want to bring you back into the conversation. You recently wrote an important opinion piece about the educational challenges that we're going to be carrying with us into 2021, coming from 2020. Could you unpack the areas that are requiring our urgent attention? Kenzie, I think it's great that you've actually led with questions around leadership and around mental health, because I think that those should precede a lot of the conversations that we have about how to get this year back on track. But I think one of the other big parts of the puzzle, and I think it's that many people gravitate towards, is what are we going to do about the curriculum? I think there's a significant temptation to just want to resume the normal calendar. For example, if you're in grade nine this year, we will start with the grade nine syllabus um, when we get back in February. But I think as the NITSCRAM data showed us, up to 40% of school days were missed by most grades. So I think that we're going to be experiencing significant gaps in curriculum coverage. Government has already announced that they will be running rapid boot camps at the start of this year to catch up the content. I, I would caution against that because I think that flies in the face of another educational principle, and that is the one of scaffolded learning. So recognizing that one layer of learning needs to be firmly in place before you can apply the next layer of learning. So I think what we need to call for is a long-term strategy that looks at how we recover content and how we bridge the existing gaps. And in that way, avoid piling work onto what I feel is already quite a shaky foundation. And Louise, I want to drill down a little bit into that because we know that children who don't develop basic literacy can't use reading to gain new knowledge, for example. And we know that those who don't you know, master basic numeracy aren't able to move on to other demanding concepts like high school mathematics. How important is it that we get back to basics as we kick off 2021? Okay, so again, I think that speaks to the the danger of acquired learning deficits. I think it it is a challenge when we assume that um, we move on to the next concept because the calendar says so, as opposed to whether we've actually mastered the content. And I think in a time like this, it's particularly dangerous. And as you've said, particularly when we're looking at our younger grades, from grades one to three, where you're learning how to read, and at grade four, we're actually using reading to acquire new knowledge. If we miss out now on that transition without having that firmly in place, then as Al said earlier, the legacy of this year, of this 
COVID period is going to be enduring. So I think it is important that we, we go back and we make sure that we've mastered those fundamentals of literacy and numeracy and actually pause and park there and spend time consolidating those foundations. And I think, Louise, what's so critical about what you're saying is how by not getting that foundation right, it'll probably expose our pupils to greater levels of inequality in their educational schooling life, right? So, so Al, I want to bring you back in on that point around inequality because it's been a real big conversation driver here in South Africa because we know how inequality affects our pupils. Learning at home during the lockdown continued in an estimated percent, like 6% of homes, the most privileged in, in the South African context. What do you think gets lost in the conversation about reducing inequality in education, in the public debate? Well, I think that's a really important point because the pandemic has really surfaced, you know, the huge social and educational inequalities in our system. Um, I mean, here we're struggling still to get schools to have basic running water and we're reopening them. But let me just go back a bit to the point that uh, was raised earlier by Louise and she's made some really good points there. I want to say that curriculum coverage is important, but it's not the only important thing we should be focusing on. My biggest concern is actually school dropout. Right? Um, they presented a figure of 15%, but I think school dropout is actually much higher than that. And so how do we, when we, as we, we, we try to reconnect to the schooling processes, how do we not only focus on curriculum recovery, but also, how do we focus on school attachment and school engagement? You know, in many communities, the more learners are at home, the less attached they feel to the school. And they become more and more distant to the learning processes and the learning orientations that they really need to be successful at school. That's another big issue. What about the psychosocial stress? So many, many people have been infected by the virus. But I would say all of us have been affected psychosocially by what's happening. And that's really important. So these are important things that we have to address. And I would say that, um, you know, just focusing on one at the expense of the others, is not the best way to, to move forward. I also just quickly want to talk about, you know, just drilling down deeper into this whole, this learning thing. So I think it was in April, I wrote a, an opinion piece around the concept of you know, um, training up what I would call community education workers. And it was based on the concept of the community healthcare workers, uh, a group that was trained, uh, a big group that was trained when we had the HIV AIDS crisis. And they were trained up, they were lay healthcare workers, trained community members, and they were trained to go in to administer and support people and families who were affected by HIV AIDS. So they took the services into the community. So I based the idea of a community education work on that. And I said that they could be young people from our communities who get trained up to actually not only support teachers in their classrooms, but to actually help really get to grips with, you know, instilling in our learners basic numeracy and literacy skills. And so they could work in classrooms, but they could also work in the interface between the school and the home, right? And for example, running reading circles, connecting around libraries, and you can do this in safe spaces. So I propose that as something that we, we, we do as a system 
you know, in terms of really embedding some of the basic skills that are needed for success. That was in, um, in April last year, I think. Uh, somehow the idea filtered through to government and I, I see that they appointed young people from communities to help in schools. However, I'm concerned about that because I don't think they've been trained up to assist teachers to really support learners, um, especially around, um, you know, the basic skills of, of learning that they would need. So, Sal and Louise, listening to, to both of you speak about, you know, what should we be thinking about, you know, for educators, policymakers, the community? I mean, there's so many important things that both of you are speaking about around inequality, around the curriculum, around supporting our educators. And listening to both of you speak, I'm hearing a lot around the complexity and thinking about the decision making process that individuals who are obviously thinking about what the, you know, the 2021 school year is going to look like. And I guess what I'm sitting back, you know, almost with a bird's eye view I'm wondering, with all of this complexity, with all of these important decisions having to be made, how does one even begin to act in a really practical and meaningful way, particularly for those who are on the ground, our teachers, our pupils, our communities? Because I feel like there's so many moving parts. And so I think you're right that there is, there is that need for, for something very practical and that we don't want to just spend our time analyzing what needs to be done, but actually doing it. I think just to give recognition to some of the work that's already been doing, I was looking at a wonderful resource this week produced by the COVID-19 People's Coalition that was a home learning support guide that's available in um, all official languages that actually gives guidance to parents around how to structure a day for their children of various ages that are at home. And it's very practical from what activities to do to the duration of those activities. So I think that there are existing resources and, and maybe Ken so we can share that in the show notes of this episode um, where we can look at practical guidelines about how we run the day. Then I think there needs to be significant um, financial action. So I think one of the areas that that we wanted to speak about as well was particularly looking at the ECD sector that's that's poised for kind of collapse if we don't make some significant changes. We were actually looking at at some of the research that shows that in last year's mid-July to mid-August, only 13% of children were in ECD centers, which is heartbreaking given the significant gains that we'd made in the previous year. In 2018, at that same time period, we had 47% of children in those centers. So there, one of the big contributing factors to that was the lack of money for ECD centers to be able to open responsibly and um, to meet all the compliance requirements. So there we're looking at, we urgently need to pay outstanding ECD subsidies from government. We need an ECD stimulus package. Um, and we need to look at private sector partnerships there around how we invest in that space. So I think we also need to partner the very practical with the financial resources to enact um, some of those, those practical steps. And there again, to give credit to organizations like Equal Education, like the COVID-19 People's Coalition, who've been mobilizing around putting some of these these key line items um, at the top of the agenda. Louise, thanks for highlighting, you know, the importance that different organizations have been playing, you know, during this pandemic. And Al, I want to bring you in here uh, specifically around the fact that you facilitated the establishment of the Magnano Network of Community Schools. 
And as I understand it, um, current interventions in the network range from curricular support for teachers and learners to community-based programs aimed at encouraging greater parental and community involvement in schools. Now, what do you think is the importance of parental and community involvement in schools, especially in the midst of our current COVID-19 situation? What are some of your perspectives on that? Well, I think it's absolutely essential that schools are strongly connected to their communities. Um, and that's not only to parents. Um, you know, a community around a school, you know, would be any individual or group that is connected to that school around a common purpose. So it would be parents, it could be faith-based organizations, it could be businesses, it could be universities. So we think about the community in a much broader sense. And, you know, parents are central to that. And of course, the connection between schools and our parent community becomes very, very important. So the Maniano Network of Schools is a good example of how you can build a sort of broader, more comprehensive response um, to supporting the holistic development of children. Because what you do is with the community school is that you tap into networks of support that are, may even be outside of the community to, to, to support the learning and development of children. So in the Maniano network of schools, they used to speak about a pipeline of support. And, you know, the word pipeline is a bit, it's a bit hard, but basically it means that, you know, if the child is in the pipeline, you know, the child is not easy for the child to pull out of that pipeline. And inside of that pipeline would be supports that range not only from, uh, uh, from educational interventions, but right through to health interventions that are coordinated and that's connected via the school to all the other important stakeholders. Um, the Maniano Network spoke about that as a pipeline from cradle to career. Right? So how do we build this, this network of support for our learners, especially our learners in our um, urban township um, and, and rural schools? How do we build that network for them? Because it's very important. And I think, you know, just for me, seeing the community school in action is actually seeing parents at, at the forefront of that, seeing them taking ownership and exercising agency, seeing them coming into a university space to do a basic course around how to support their children at home. There's a lovely program that is run at uh, Nelson Mandela University called Family Maths, and the university works with parents to help children with numeracy skills. So there are a number of good examples of these innovations that are happening. The big challenge is how do we scale this up? How do we make this um, a national project? And this is where, you know, getting government to think about education in a much broader way becomes important because we need a societal response to, to you know, to getting us out of, you know, the current crisis. And that has to have two very important um, parts attached to it. First, we need to have interministerial connections. So we not only need education to be part of this, we need health services, we need social services, we may even need SAPs, the South African Police Services, because safety and security at many schools is a big problem. But how do the departments come together to support schools? The second component would be, what are the community organizations out there that we could call upon to help and support schools? And there are many, many, many of them doing good work um, in our country, in many different uh, communities. And what we need is a more coordinated response that is more purposeful about what we want to achieve. 
Oh, I love what you're saying about the pipeline and the different elements that we need to bring together to make something like that work. It makes me think about how we speak about a whole systems approach when we're thinking about interventions and where we intervene within an ecosystem, right? And and Louise, I want to bring you in because I know you have a lot of insights having worked with teachers, having done a lot of work with schools, with the work you're doing for the Bertha Center. I'm curious about listening to what Al said is about the pipeline. What do you think are some of the challenges that our schools and our teachers may have to building something like this? Can say I think one of the the fundamental components of building that community of support is communication. And I think that has really suffered um, at the hands of the pandemic because a lot of our communication has been stripped down to the bare minimum. We're only talking about the functional things when we talk to our fellow stakeholders. We're talking about when we're reopening. We're talking about data costs, We're talking, which is so important. But I think what I've heard people express is a frustration around the quality of the communication. So where is the transparency? Yes, we're hearing the decisions, but we'd also really love to hear the rationale behind some of those decisions. So again, just to reclaim that sense of us. And I think that's difficult. We're grappling with that within our our own professional organizations, right? Where we know that moving online to Zoom means we're missing out on the corridor conversations that sometimes fuel some of these collaborations. And I think that's exactly the same thing that's happening in schools. I think, um, as I'll mention, not to underestimate the role that um, the NGO sector plays in strengthening and supporting schools. And they have also been dealing with significant financial HR and technology challenges as their entire mode of delivery has had to change. And that's happening at the same time as a funder potentially clinging to the agreed upon deliverables and how we're going to measure those deliverables. So then missing that freedom to say exactly what I mentioned earlier, let's acknowledge that none of us have all the answers and let's give each other the grace to be able to have a conversation where we co-create what this might have to look like in this time when we're uncertain. So I think we need greater communication. We need greater um, humility, perhaps in having spaces where we're not looking for the adults in the room with all the answers, but actually acknowledging that we need to figure that out together. Um, and then perhaps just returning to, to assuming the best of each other. I think for the majority of teachers that I've engaged with, they're passionate about learners and supporting learners. And um, I think I think we just need to to return to those shared values that that is all often speaks about, like are those boundary spanning values that help us to figure out what us looks like. So I guess in, in, in closing, the disruption that COVID-19 has caused on our schools has had a major effect on the mental health of learners. And a recent report that was published by the Western Cape Burden of Disease Reduction indicated that 2020 saw the highest level of teen suicides in the Western Cape. So can we talk a little bit about acknowledging the psychological damage caused by COVID-19 in 2020 and how do we move forward? Oh, some of your thoughts. So, yeah, the, the emerging research is correct. I mean, the impact of this is really, really severe. And, you know, I always say that, you know, we can sometimes see the impact of disruptive schooling because it's in front of us. But the impact of, you know, the psychosocial effects on, on, on learners, on parents, on teachers, it's, it's invisible, right? And, uh, you know, we can't expect colleagues to bury it. Right? We have to allow a space for them to be able to share and talk about what they are experiencing and going through. So I've proposed, and in the work that we're doing in some provinces, the concept of the three C's for schools. 
first C is care. We need to encourage schools to build a culture of care. The second C is the curriculum. And we need to focus on the curriculum, but it cannot be an exclusive focus. And the third C is the community. So care, curriculum, and the community should be the focus of schools. And what we say is that a culture of care underpins the curriculum. A culture of care in a school underpins teaching and learning, right? A learner is going to engage in the learning processes much more effectively if that learner feels that I, as the teacher, care about him or her. So that's really important. So care underpins the curriculum of a school and community extends the curriculum. So if we get those three C's right and we build the relationships and the links between the three C's, um, I feel we can put together quite a comprehensive response to not only what our learners are going through psychosocially, but also in terms of re-engaging them in the learning process. And like I said, it has to be a comprehensive approach um, in order for us to succeed. Thanks, Al. Um, Louise, your closing thoughts? Can say just to you would echo what Al has said there about the care component. I think as as a former teacher myself, I'm always very protective of teachers. And I think one of the things I would caution against is again making this an additional duty that solely rests with teachers to be able to identify um these psychosocial challenges to be able to address them. I think the best thing that we can do for teachers is to establish a credible referral pathway for teachers. Yes, they know children the best, but they're not equipped to deal with the myriad challenges that, that young people are experiencing at the moment. So again, wanting to call on government for to an increased psychosocial support pathway that is accessible, that is reliable, but I would say particularly in this time that urgently is able to respond timelessly and to say to teachers it's okay because you can refer a child but you as a teacher know that that child will only be seen to in months is not is not something that we can uh, can rely on in this time so i think um setting up those partnerships with the department of health the department of social development to speed up um, that referral pipeline is important and i love what um professor jace halay said that sometimes we use the notion that children are resilient as a cop-out. Yes, they are resilient, but we need to give them the resources to activate that resilience. So I think we need to be intentional as the adults in the room about equipping our young people with those resources. Well, that's certainly some food for thought. Thank you, Alan Louise, for your insights. We've asked some teachers what they think is most needed to make 2021 a good year for our children. Here's what they had to say. So what is needed for 2021 to be a good year? A measure of certainty, I think. They need to know what the academic year um, for term one will at least will look like. They need a plan A if things are gonna stay the same. Um, this is what, it, what we will be doing this year. A plan B if things change for better or worse. This is what, what the academic pro program will look like. They need to know assessment-wise, how are they going to be assessed. We need to take pressure and anxiety from our learners and try and come up with a plan and at the start so, they need, so that they know what the year will look like more or less. 
I would just say that I think the most significant baggage that they're carrying at the moment is um, an, in, the in, negative impact on their social relationships and interactions. I think we are going to be forced to really consider what are the fundamentals that we really need our children to invest on, and not just for this year, but ongoing, because it seems as if a lot of things are going to change and, and stay, or rather stay the same for quite a while. So for me, I would emphasize good education, um, really good education without compromising the safety of those that are involved in education um, and integrating that education with health and not just the economy, because it seems as if the economy is very important. It's no doubt going to be another tough year for our children and youth, but innovations inside and outside the classroom may hold some important lessons for the 2021 school year. And on that note, I'll hand over to Simnigiwe as she chats to Spark School's Zipindi Lembiza about what they've been doing differently. Thanks, Kense. 2020 called for rapid innovation, particularly in the education sector, that's for sure. With the recognition that not all low-cost private schools are created equal, as education experts warn of unregistered fly-by-night operators that prey on the perception that private necessarily means better. The well-established Spark Schools, a network of independent schools working to offer affordable, globally competitive education, was one example of the willingness to be agile in response to the challenges of the last few months. A previous indicator of their responsiveness was with the call to grow multilingualism in schools. All Spark Schools offer, as a first additional language mandatory from grade R, the most populous, previously marginalized African language of the province. For example, the first additional language offered in Gauteng is Isizul, and the first additional language offered in the Western Cape is Isikos. One of Spark School's initiatives, launched at the height of the COVID-19 outbreak, was its Ignite Relief Fund project. This project was aimed at raising funds for existing Spark School's families who lost their jobs and income due to COVID-19. In addition to this initiative, the network of schools decided not to increase school fees for 2021 and is allowing parents to pay fees over 12 months instead of 10 months. As Kansi mentioned, today we're hearing from Zipindi Lembiza, Spark School's principal of Spark Rosalind Hub in Soshangwuf. Welcome Zipindi. We're excited to have you on the show today and I'm sure we're going to glean some helpful insights from you. So we'll just jump right in uh, into our conversation. To start, um, low-fee private schools are said to be one of the fastest-growing segments on the continent. Could you tell us a bit about the Spark School model? Okay. So as you know, Spark Schools is also one of the um, schools that offer quality education at a low uh, fee because we believe that every child or rather every child in each family deserves quality education. And just because you have ex- you do not have access to certain resources does not necessarily mean that you um, should not receive the best that you can. So our model is uh, providing quality education at a low cost. And um, we outsource the best with our curriculum. And obviously we cut costs where it's not necessary. Well, thank you. Um- Indeed, quality education is a necessity in this country. And um, I like that you've mentioned that um, it needs to be at a low cost because a lot of people don't have enough money to um, to be able to take their children to school. 
um, that will give them quality education. And so following on that, um, data is such a big uh, thing in this country where a lot of people don't have access to data. And so access to data and online learning isn't always a possibility, especially in a South African context. There are always obstacles. Um, how did you go about supporting your school communities during COVID-19, um, as well as how you made it possible for kids to continue learning? So perhaps if you can share a bit about your remote learning offerings during this time as well. Okay, so with our remote learning, we wanted to cater for pretty much everyone. So we do cater for people who have access to the internet, but we also cater for the, the scholars or families that do not have access to the internet. So at the moment, we have um, two offerings um, before we reopen in February. Our first offering is remotely offline. So teachers will prepare their um, slides and all their plans and work that scholars need to um, complete in class and these are uploaded online for people who can access them and download them at their own time and then those same activities are also shared with parents. Parents are welcome to come to school and collect these home learning packs. So the scholars at home who are not able to access the online learning are still able to access the same content that was taught in the classroom even though the teacher was not present. So that's how at the moment we are uh, working around the situation and obviously we're still trying to find other means in case we the school year changes completely so those are the two offerings that we have now and parents have a choice to choose one of them and we make sure that whatever we give them is of quality so that they get the same um, as the child who would be online oh, thank you for sharing that i like that you mentioned um parents having a choice because oftentimes parents are not able to make that choice of um, having these two different things on offer. So with 2020, it's asked for a lot more innovation and many have argued that we shouldn't return to normal in all ways. I'm just curious to hear a bit more about last year's necessitating innovation. Um, what did Spark Schools do differently that you would like to keep going in 2021 and perhaps even beyond? So last year, immediately when um, lockdown hit, uh, we came up with um, contingency plans. And um, the first one was obviously moving online. And at that time, no one really knew how what the best one would be. But we use... Um, we use a lot of Google and we use its learning. So what we're doing now, making sure that teachers have their lessons online and making sure that those lessons, we can keep those lessons for parents who are able to download them later and um, ensuring that whatever was in class is also given to parents who are not, who can come to school physically. So the one thing um, that Spark did really well, I think it's just in the attitude of the fact that we need to make sure that there is no child left behind. So we just need to make sure that learning is happening. So I think that's what we worked on, that learning should happen regardless of where we are um, as a country. So we started off with remote learning and now we are just improving that. I think the fact that we are continually just seeing how we need to make things work for that particular moment is what I feel should continue at Spark, even though, um, I mean, at times it's completely different, but that's what I feel, that attitude of continuing and adapting. Zipindile, thank you so much once again for your time. It was so great to have you here and you sharing insights about the school. 
While the concept of the new year as a metaphor, bringing with it thoughts of fresh starts and renewed energy is appealing, this approach may leave us unprepared to meet our current challenges. Education in South Africa already has a painful legacy of inequality and historical imbalances, and these have, by all accounts, been made worse by COVID-19. We need to find ways to remedy the loss of learning, to motivate for increased funding and capacity building, and to strengthen partnerships and collaborations that can help us boost educational outcomes. There is too much at stake, and already so much has been lost. Thank you for tuning in to Just For A Change, powered by the Bertha Centre for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. The podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Also, remember to have a look at the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship.